We drove the ute out to Tambar Springs, a small town in far west New South Wales, where John Anderson's family have lived and farmed for five generations, and where, coincidentally, I lived until I was seven years old. While John and my paths didn't cross then, we've since become friends, and it was a pleasure to spend time talking with him at his farm. We spoke about his journey to faith during his university years, his views on farming and care of the land for future generations, and his insights into politics from his many years as a Member of Parliament and the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I'm Carl Fays, and this is my interview with John Anderson. John, we're here on the family farm, your family farm, which is absolutely stunning. What was it like growing up here? Isolated. We went to town probably only once a month. You know, most of the uh, staples uh, were uh, home produced. Yep. Uh, but uh, there was a much closer local community. So every weekend would be a tennis party or whatever. And half the district seemed to migrate to the same beach at summertime. So, but it was pretty isolated day by day. Um, how many generations? How long has the farm existed in your family? My family have been in this part of New South Wales now since the 1840s. Uh, they moved not far from here about 115 years ago to here. So my grandson is now the one, two, three, four, fifth on this place. Wow. So 1840, that's pretty early. What brought them here? Very early. One side of the family came here from Devon in England, three brothers, and one of them managed to shoot one of the others, but it was a genuine accident. So then there were two, uh, and I think they were looking for opportunity. Uh, the Anderson side were doctors, uh, uh, Glasgow educated doctors, uh, and they came out here looking, I think, for opportunity for their children and grandchildren. They were looking much further ahead. That's what they did in those days. Uh, we're not much good at that now. When we talk about uh, hope for the future, I think we probably mean a good time tonight. Yeah, it's a, it's, um, it's a remarkable decision, isn't it? I mean, it's Incredible. halfway around the world, six months on a boat. Risky on the boat. Yeah. Risky when you get here. And in fact, uh, my uh, forebear, Anderson, who was a Glasgow-educated doctor, died of appendicitis. Mm. And there was no one to operate. They probably could have operated in those days if there'd been someone else there. Uh, but he wasn't able to. He died leaving his widow with five children in the Australian bush. Wow. She actually had seven, but two had died uh, at a boarding school down in the Hunter Valley at Morpeth, somewhere down there. And uh, they wouldn't have got the letter until two or three weeks after the children were oh buried. It wasn't even a railway, let alone wow. a telegraph. So they're out there in the middle of nowhere. And yet they carved out a civilised life for themselves wow. quite quickly for all of that. John, people know you as a person of faith now. If we met you as um, a young boy, year seven, year eight, what was faith for you then? Oh, look, a vague belief in an impersonal God. Certainly a belief he was there, uh, but uh, no knowledge mm. worth mentioning and no concept of a personal relationship. So that wasn't part of your family life? No, no, no. it wasn't. So what changed? We belonged to an old sort of, you know, the Presbyterian Scottish sort of tradition where we were my mother died when I was very young and we had a series of governesses and my father used to, I suppose, out of some respect for family tradition, insist that we say our prayers before we went to bed at night. And that was the extent of it. Mm. What changed? Oh, look, in my teenage years, uh, we had a terrible accident here on the farm and I grew up overnight. I sort of lost my innocence and in my childhood. Uh, and uh, I wanted to understand how, why, how do I make sense of this, you know? And uh, is there hope? Is there, you know 
some way of overcoming the pain. Mm. So for me, it was an experience of he first hearing a school chaplain talking about a God who cared and loved and could be loved in response. And I was pretty angry and unimpressed with that idea because I had this notion that if there was a God, he couldn't know us individually. We were all just a whole lot of ants running around on the surface of the earth. I didn't go to talk to him about it. I went to talk to my then commerce teacher who seemed to believe all this funny stuff. And I thought he was old and wise and experienced. When I look back on it, he, I did the maths, he was 27. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, in a sense, led me to personal yeah. faith. Yeah. yeah. So what difference did it make, John? I think anyone who's undergone a, a real experience of conversion, it, it is life-changing. You're never the same again because you understand for the first time that God is intensely personal and he becomes very real. doesn't mean to say you don't kick over the traces because I mm. did and slipped away from it probably reasonably quickly. But at university, I fell in love deeply with history. Mm. And the history of our own culture since the Reformation is that at every point we want to tear away from faith, thinking that somehow or other we can do it better on our own. That's human nature. And when you see it playing out in history, the thing that really, really struck me was that the, if you, to, this is very crude and very simple, but the, the left wing solution to the need to get rid of God was communism and the right wing was fascism and both were horrendous, mm. horrendous and patently obviously to me bad and not places I wanted to go to. And so there was a process where the mind, I suppose, joined the heart mm. and, and put the two together. And I thought, well, I, I can't not believe. Yeah. It's an interesting story, John, because a lot of people end up growing up as teenagers at church with faith, go to university and lose faith. In this instant, it actually deepened faith for you. It did. We had a very, very intellectually honest uh, late modern European uh, 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 lecturer uh, his name from memory was Bob Dreyer. He'd been to Vietnam. Now, he didn't believe himself, but he made it very plain that he struggled with the question, that it was an honest struggle, and that we shouldn't think we could escape the need to come to grips with that reality as well. Because in a sense, history is the study of ideas and how they played out. And it, he brought us to a point where he said, well, you're at a fork in the road, you know, and uh, you, you've got to decide whether you're going to try and find another way to escape these belief systems or whether you're going to go back and embrace them mm -hmm. and just think long and hard about where we've ended up as we try to deny them. And that's our universities are full yeah. of people now trying to deny it. And I would say they are visiting great misery on a lot of their students. The amazing thing is that I meet students everywhere who say, no one in our tutorial stroke lecture group stroke whatever, um, you know, fails to recognising we'll have a whole lot of ideology pushed down our throats. They see it. I just uh, hope and, and, and pray that a lot of them start to understand a little more, question a bit more, look for better answers. Mm. Uh, because if they can sense they're being sold a pup, a dud, well, go and look for the real thing. Yeah. So John, you, you were going through universities in the sort of 70s and 80s. You, you're struggling with belief, but it's also a time of social ferment mm. and enormous change in people's morals and the moral stance. And it seems to me a lot of people didn't grapple with the intellectual problem because actually they were, they were actually experimenting with the moral issues. Yeah. How was that for you? Uh, tough, frankly, because I suppose morally I wanted to go with the flow. It's so much more comfortable. Yeah. And you know, when you're young, you don't understand that the pursuit of pleasure is very different from the pursuit of happiness. 
the pursuit of pleasure often forecloses the opportunity to find happiness. Because happiness in the end is found in deep and committed relationships for a start. And pleasure often consists in simply, you know, to be really crude about it, somebody saying, lend me your body so that I can satisfy mine. And it's done without relationship. It's sans relationship. And in the end, everybody ends up just being a bit degraded over time. Um, relationships are the key, surely. And, and deep commitment in relationships is the oil that makes them work. Yeah. And I struggled a lot with that. Yeah. And I think I probably made a lot of terrible mistakes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I hope I found at least the sort of general direction in which integrity and, and truth lie. We're on the farm and you spend a lot of time as a farmer and you're, you're a farmer now. What's it like being a farmer? Frustrating, frankly. Uh, you've got to have a love for it and you've got to have the temperament. Um, you've got to be able to put things down and accept the mm. disappointments that come. Uh, the, the, the utter frustration of not knowing how to handle a drought. Do I sell livestock? Do I feed livestock? Do I spend a fortune on them or do I sell them? Do I then try and buy back in? How many more crop losses can I survive before you know, the bank sort of uh, um, becomes involved or whatever it happens to be? It is a stressful occupation and it always has been because you're dealing with so many unknowns. Yeah. Most businesses you're dealing with some unknowns, but in this one, it's prices, it's seasons, uh, it's, it's everything. Um, so why stay with it? Uh, because I think for a lot of people it's a vocation and I think people do, they have a love of the land. You know, uh, you, know you stop and think about uh, who are the real sheep, the ones that live in the city or the country. Uh, <laughs> and I notice that most of the sheep in the city, if they get the opportunity, they want to go and buy a bit of dirt. Yeah. Somehow it's deep in our psyche for a lot of people. Is it a business or a passion? It has to be both. I used to have that discussion. I don't think he'd mind me saying it with Peter Costello. I'd say, you know, you farmers, you've got to treat it like a business. And I said, if we all treated it like a business, mate, you wouldn't be eating. You know, it has to be a sense of vacation as well. Yeah. Because as a, look, as a business, we'd be far better off. You, know, you flog the land and go and invest it and live comfortably ever after. Because the capital value of any sort of quality farm at all bears, no, the only capacity bears no relationship to that capital value. What value does the, the agricultural business make to Australia's economy? Well, it depends how you slice and dice it, really. I mean, if you say straight agriculture, it probably only employs 2% of the workforce. Whereas, mm. say, when my forebears came out here, it would have been 50 or 60%. That's mechanisation, it's science, it's all sorts of things. Um, look at it another way, it's probably only 3% of GDP. But on the other hand, if you, if you sort of take into account the multipliers, the food processing, grocery distribution, restauranteering and so forth, it's a far greater part of the economy. Mm. But I'd submit in the end, it's a part of the economy uh, that no matter its size, without it, none of us would be doing anything else. We have to eat. So, John, you, you come to this role as a Christian. Being a farmer, running a business as someone who seeks to follow Jesus, does that influence how you are a farmer? Do you know, I think I'm going to say in defence of most farmers that the key thing that I think is important in a farmer's mind from a faith perspective should be stewardship over the land. You're looking after it for future mm -hmm. generations, not just for yourself. And I think this is often misunderstood. Most farmers care passionately about their land and are always looking forward, looking for better ways mm -hmm. to 
um, ensure that what they're doing is as sustainable as possible, they're having the least impact in terms of soil erosion, in terms of soil degradation and what have you. And we continue to make advances. And one of the great ironies in the great emissions debate going on at the moment is that farmers, unlike you know all you city folk who just put out all those dirty emissions, we are users of carbon, but we're recyclers of it. Mm. We're users of it as well. And we only have to retain quite modest amounts of extra carbon in the soil and we can sequestrate a great deal of what other activities uh, people are engaging in are producing. And I think we're only just beginning to understand how extensive the opportunities there actually are. Mm -hmm. And here's an irony, more carbon in the soil means more drought resistance and higher quality, denser foodstuffs. So we keep learning. Mm. And agriculture has changed hugely over my lifetime. In some ways the biggest change in grazing was the development of cheap, affordable polythene piping so that you could take water much more widely and distribute it to where you needed it so the cattle didn't flog you know, the areas around, the, you know, around the, the water hole. You could take the water out to where you wanted them to move to and we've got better and better at that. If you take farming, uh, you know, increasingly we're getting towards the point now where our tractors are, I think the jargon today in a motor car would be semi-automated. Uh, mm. um, You've got to turn it around at the end, but the tractors are, you know, all run on GPS coordinates. And I think there are six screens in our main broadacre tractor. So this is not low technology. Yep. It's not an area where science is unimportant. Far from it. And one Australian farmer feeds, it's estimated, uh, uh, 600 people. I don't think farmers anywhere in the world can match that. Yep. And we do it in a tough environment. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. Our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. So, John, you're on the farm. It's, it's going reasonably well in a good season. Politics, why'd that change? Uh, well, uh, I've always been extremely interested in public life and I've always had a feeling that the way in which the country is run is important mm. and it does have to do with a clash of ideas and I burn with a deep passion for freedom and for opportunity and I use those words carefully before I then say prosperity because I think that matters as well mm. but freedom and opportunity, prosperity and I think we are seeing enormous attempts from within to derail the things that our forefathers built. And I think now globally the world is a very unstable place. And I think there are real questions about how a, a, a democracy of 25 million people, not a small country, but not a huge country, a significant country, mm. committed to freedom, maintains all those good things in the instability that is descending upon the, the, mm. the whole world now. Yeah. You know, the idea that the West leads, 
that. It sets the model. Everybody else tries to emulate it. And America is the big sort of guiding light and guarantor of all of this watching over us is breaking down very rapidly. What is Australia's place? How do we secure it? Uh, if uh, my grandson is the, whatever it works out at, the seventh or the eighth or whatever it is, kid out here in, in the Australian bush and wants to continue it, how do we make sure he has that and that that continuity is there? Mm. Uh, the other thing I'd say though, and I mean this very sincerely, we need to be worthy successors to those who risked everything before us, who took unbelievable chances with their own lives and opportunities to try and make sure that those who followed would have the good things that we take for granted. Are, are we worthy heirs to that? We're just, you know, you think of Anzac Day. Mm. Are we worthy heirs? I don't know. I hope we are. John, politicians don't always have a great reputation. For the politicians that you met, why did most of them go into political life? You, well, you, <laughs> this is a really important point. People, there's an old saying, you get the politicians you deserve. Well, there's, there's an enormous ring of truth to that. You know, a culture that values service, that values the notion of doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you, that is committed to the great and lofty but important ideals of freedom and of progress and of gradual elimination of poverty and disease and discrimination and uh, all of those good things, if they're motivated by those things and the sort of people that they, that community will throw up will reflect those things. But we shouldn't be surprised, I've got to be really blunt about this, that if we brought a, up generations of children to believe that they're the centre of their own universe, why on earth are we surprised if some of our politicians look as though they think they're the centre of their universe? Mm. It's a point at which, this is a really important point, we see that we actually don't really like our own value system much. Yeah. We're all happy there to sit there as voters and say, it's all about me. And we teach our kids, uh, it's all about you. But then we see our politicians looking as though it's all about them and we say, hang on, we don't like that value system much at all. What's yeah. gone wrong here? It should be about us. Yeah. So you're saying that our politicians can be a bit of a mirror to the community in which they represent. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that's the whole idea of democracy, of course. Yeah. That they'll reflect your beliefs, your values and put into place the things that you want to have prioritised according to your beliefs and values. Uh, but having said that, so, so, so to answer your question, I, I think there has been a shift. Yeah. And I don't want to get into the business of judging current politicians because there are many fine men and women who are not being given a fair go. Mm. We seem to have this absurd idea that, oh, well, you know, I expect you to run the place so that I'm absolutely safe and I have a strong economy uh, and I have job opportunities. Uh, so I'll put you up there, you be, and I'll flog the living daylights out of you until you give me what I want. It's not actually the way you get the best performance out of people. Any real leader knows that. And we need to recognise that we have been unbelievably fortunate in some of the people who have sought public office and have ended up in high office. Mm. But I do think we need to be aware that as we become more selfish, so do the people we throw up. Yeah. And the other thing we do, and this is really important, we are now providing massive disincentive for good people to have a go because mm. we invade their personal lives. We subject them to the amplification of our hatreds through social media. Uh, and we put people where, I, if, if I had a dollar for the number of good people in the northwest of New South Wales who said to me when I was retiring, I'd be interested in your job interested in having a go, 
But my wife and kids say, Dad, I just, I, I'm not prepared to go there with you, or, you know, husband, I'm not prepared mm -hmm. to go there with you, or wife, whatever the case is, because of the way in which you will be attacked and will be dragged down with it. Wow, wow. it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it reflects, it'll be pretty blunt. Yeah. It reflects pretty badly on where the, the hold the haters in our society have. Orwell, George Orwell spoke of a certain class of people who get their greatest adrenaline rush out of rushing to hatred and judgment before reasonableness mm. and acceptance. Yeah. And unfortunately, social media has given them a massive amplifier and it is doing real damage. Yeah. It's not social media that's the problem. It's like all technology, it's, it's neutral. It's what the haters, and we have too many of them in our community, maybe that's not new, but they now have a weapon at their disposal they haven't had in the past. And we haven't come to grips with that as a, as a society. But if good men and women are going to be put off by the Twitterati and they behave, then pity help us when we really need the right people leading us forward. John, politics has often been described as the art of the possible, which means that compromise sits in that mix. As a person, you, know, you talked about faith and beliefs and your own values. So in politics, how did you, how did you deal with the art of the possible and the, the, the tension to compromise? It's critically important that you accept you can't always have your own way. And that the very, uh, I mean, just as the Almighty, just as God gives us free choice, and he might be able to warn us that bad choices will result in bad outcomes and it's up to us to take notice of it. In the end, political leaders need to respect in a democracy, they have to respect the wishes of the people. Now, we've seen instances of people who have said, look, it's just too much. I mean, I think of Senator Joe Bullock, Labor Party Senator from Western Australia, and when his party decided it was, there wouldn't be a conscience vote, as I understand it, there would only be a rigid vote as a matter of policy on marriage and he felt he couldn't agree with it, he left. And that's a man standing by his principles. Oh. And I ask the question, is he, is, is the Twitterati would deplore him for that. Uh, others might say, holding true to your principles is in fact something that we should admire. Mm. Mm. We are a divided community. We have, to use a common expression, done a lot of damage to our moral compass if we haven't lost it. Yeah and yet we fume self-righteously all too often. I don't want to despair. I make the point again, there are many fine men and women in Australia doing their level best to serve, and we ought to reward them and encourage them and create space for more to step into that space. John, on a regular basis, you'll get political commentators who are disparaging of people who have, hold public Christian beliefs as politicians. And there's this line that says you should leave your Christian faith outside the party room, outside the cabinet. How did you deal with that? Oh, well, good question to ask. Which bit of my Christianity would you like me to leave behind? The bit that cares about the poor or those who are different to me uh, or the bit that's committed to justice, the, commit, the bit that's... Uh, you know, committed to integrity and the fair use of scales and weights and what have you, good public policy. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the tritest lines I've ever heard. I have to say that because we all have belief systems. And I haven't noticed too many progressives being prepared to leave their values mm. behind when they go into the cabinet room. I don't see why people of Christian faith who after all are in many ways, this just simply has to be said, there are, there are more than enough non-Christians the Tom Hollands of this world who can clearly see 
that our freedoms are based in the idea of the worth and dignity of all, and that is essentially a Christian idea. And as Teddy Roosevelt said, uh, the one time Republican president, the first of the Roosevelts who was president of the United States, he made the very astute observation that, you know, the idea of the rule of law is incredibly important. No one should be above the law. We get that bit right. But he also said no one should be below it. Mm. And this idea that the king must respect the peasant is pretty radical. You don't find it in any other culture. That's unique. Mm to the West and its origins are plainly Christian. You can't get away from it. I said this to a nephew of mine. Oh no, all the religions teach that. And I said to him, really? Where's your evidence for that? He said, I've got my iPad here, I'll look it up. And I thought, mate, you call yourself a scientist and you think I'm gonna find the answer to some great scientific question just by flicking through? It's not like that. Mm. And the triteness with which we often dismiss our heritage is in my view quite troubling yeah. because we haven't, we haven't anchored ourselves. As Oz Guinness says, we've become a cut flower society. We've cut ourselves off from the roots that grew us and the, if you like, nutrition streams that, um, that, that keep us flourishing. And so we're like a sort of, uh, you know, we look good sitting in a vase, but every time there's a hot wind, we wilt and we recover a bit less. Every time there's a cold wind, we wilt and we recover a bit less. We need to reattach ourselves to some nutrition. Mm. John, you represented this area in the federal parliament. You brought to that role your Christian values, but you actually represent a whole bunch of people that don't have those values. How did you deal with that tension? Not always easily, and perhaps I didn't always deal with it as well as I should have. I tried to be open and transparent. I tried to genuinely seek to persuade. I think Edmund Burke had it right. Uh, sometimes you hear this line that politicians should always do exactly what their electorate wants. In fact, your greatest responsibility and the highest moral approach you can take is to give them your thoughtful consideration and your conscience and then let them pass judgment on it in, this, in the case of Australia's electoral system federally every three years. The idea that politicians are somehow not subject to scrutiny is, is, is bollocks, mm. of course. Mm. Uh, nobody goes through as many job uh, uh, reviews as a politician and uh, you know the, the voters are... Fair, fair enough too, they're, they're tough taskmasters. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the people here were kind enough to return me over seven elections. Uh, once they pushed me to preferences, um, and, uh, but only once. Uh, and uh, I don't say it was easy, but generally speaking, I found that people were receptive to a good argument. And I, I sometimes suspect our leaders give way too easily before they mount a good argument mm. and explain why they're seeking to do what they're doing. And I think one area where you can see that at the moment, you see, I believe economics is a profoundly moral business. And at the moment we hear, oh, in the name of compassion, we must go on spending, 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 without stopping to think that in the name of prudence and wisdom, and looking after the next generation, we actually need to curtail mm. our own immediate desire for indulgences, because if we don't, we're effectively going to engage in intergenerational theft. We're going to you know, really impact on those kids because we're going to hand on most of the Western countries unconscionable levels of debt. And by the way, we've had fewer children. So there'll be fewer people working, paying crippling taxes if we're not careful. You see, so it's a highly moral business. And when you put that to people, they say, yeah, I get that. But it's not put to them often enough. Yeah. John, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. 
As you look at Australia, how do you see, or do you see, that faith runs deep? I genuinely don't know. I, I, I have to say that. Um, I meet people who are very thoughtful and who are really interested in a profound conversation. I meet a lot of young people who feel that there must be something more. And there's evidence for that. Look at the way young people flock to hear Jordan Peterson. Now the, uh, the, the, the politically correct brigade would say, well, they shouldn't be listening. But he's actually delivering quite a tough message. He's saying, you're not the person you ought to be. Well, a Christian can agree with that. Mm. You're not as good as you know you should be. You're not as noble as you know you should be. So, and I'm paraphrasing, go back to your bedroom, have a long, hard look at yourself. The more you look at yourself, the more you'll realise you're falling short. But pull your shoulders back, sort yourself out, and then, but not before then, go out and try and be noble and make a positive difference in the world. But if you go out in an angry state of mind, having not recognised your own strengths and weaknesses, not being honest about yourself, you really shouldn't be lecturing others on how to run their lives. And there's a bit too much of that about at the moment, I think. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.